All right. Well, we will be continuing today in our study going through the book, The Sabbath as Rest and Hope for the People of God. The book is by Guy Prentice Waters, and it's another book in our series that we've been going through in these studies of biblical theology, and it's focused on a biblical theology of the Sabbath. Today we're on the third chapter of the book, which focuses on what Scripture says about the Sabbath within the prophetic books of the Old Testament. If you recall from our previous studies, we looked at the Sabbath within the creation account in our first study, and then last week, Pastor Fry took us through what Scripture has to say about Sabbath in the books of the law, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Old Testament. Just as a quick recap to help bring us all back up to speed with where we were, or if you haven't been here, hopefully this gives you an idea of what we've covered so far, at least at a high level. Starting out, looking at the Sabbath in creation, we saw that God made the Sabbath and that he blessed it and made it holy. When he rested on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, after creating everything in six days, he established the first Sabbath day. The Sabbath that the Lord made was a blessing for the man and the woman, his image bearers whom he had made on the sixth day. And it brought them into a restful communion with God and a worship of God. In creating the world in six days and resting on the seventh, God established a pattern for man to follow in similarly working for six days and then resting on the seventh day. And lastly, we saw that while the first Adam sinned against God and disrupted this restful and worshipful communion that he and his posterity would have otherwise enjoyed in perpetuity, that now God's elect people, those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ, the last Adam, walk by faith and look to the future with hope as they await this future rest this uh, restoration of that perpetual Sabbath. They look forward to this permanent Sabbath that they will enjoy with the Lord in his presence in a future new creation. Then last week, as we turned to the books of the law, we saw the Sabbath as part of a pattern that Israel observed in collecting manna in the wilderness, collecting it for six days and refraining on the seventh. And then after that, we saw in the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai that God commands Israel to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Here, God was not establishing the Sabbath as if it had not existed before. This was the first time it came into existence. Rather than establishing it, here God is confirming the Sabbath that he had already established at creation. The Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral law, which is binding on all men at all times and all places. This means that keeping the Sabbath, likewise, is morally binding upon all men at all times and in all places. And it was certainly binding on Israel, with whom God was entering into a covenant when he gave the fourth commandment. Additionally, the Sabbath served as a reminder for Israel that God had created them and was sovereign over them. 
that God was their redeemer, having delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and that he was their covenant God. So it served as a sign and a reminder as well. So we talked about all of those things last week. Now, today, as we turn to chapter 3 in the book, we'll move forward in time chronologically, and we'll survey what three of the major prophets, along with one of the last books in the Old Testament, one of the historical books, have to teach us about the importance of the Sabbath in the life and worship of the people of God. Specifically, we'll be looking at examples from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel from the prophets, and then also Nehemiah from the historical writings. And we'll continue developing this biblical theology of the Sabbath. And this will set us up for our next session, which I think will be in two weeks, um, when we will turn to the New Testament and the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ on the importance and the purpose of the Sabbath. So we're walking through, starting you know, as we have with creation, the law, the prophets, then Christ, and then we'll start looking more at application. Um, but even though we aren't quite to that application that comes later in the book, we've already seen in these first chapters that there are already applications that we can make to the church today. And we'll continue to try to draw those out. But I'd encourage you to keep that in mind as we're going through uh, scripture here. In the various examples from Scripture that we'll look, like, look at in our lesson today, we'll see the Sabbath referenced both as an element of Israel's persistent breaking of God's law and covenant, and then also an element of a future restoration of God's people to the blessings of fellowship and worship of God. As the author points out at the beginning of the chapter, just as the Sabbath features in prophetic words of judgment to Israel, so also the Sabbath features in the prophetic vision of restoration in Christ. However, all of this falls under one unifying and overarching theme, and that is that the keeping of the Sabbath is essential to walking faithfully before the Lord. The keeping of the Sabbath is essential to walking faithfully before the Lord. What we will see in our study is that the faithfulness of Israel in the keeping of the Sabbath specifically is a primary indicator of their faithfulness toward God more generally. When Israel is walking in right relationship with the Lord, they inevitably are faithful in keeping his Sabbath. But when we see Israel failing to remember his Sabbath and keep it holy as he commanded them, it's always a sign of broader disobedience to God's law and rebellion against him on the part of Israel. As we walk through these historical examples, it's my hope that we'll better appreciate how important God's Sabbath is in the lives of his people and how critical their keeping of it is to their ability to enjoy fellowship with him and I think if, you know, it's not hard for us, even though we're going to see these examples of Sabbath keeping being a necessary part of the religious life of corporate Israel, I think it's not hard for us to also easily understand how applicable it is to us in our current day and 
even in our individual lives. Um, you know, keeping the Sabbath is essential in, uh, in our walk before God. Um, you know, just take, for example, any time if you've ever had to be away from church for a couple weeks or a few weeks, um, you know, missing out on the gathering of the saints, it affects us spiritually. Um, we feel, you know, spiritually distant from the Lord. Uh, you know, we can feel the difference compared to when we are coming together each and every Lord's Day to meet with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even one Sunday away, I, I've noticed, you know, myself that just being gone away from the presence of fellow believers is, it, it results in, uh, you know, it has a spiritual impact on your life. Um, and so we know that keeping the Sabbath and, and meeting together on the Lord's Day is critically important. I think we'll just see that, you know, even further confirmed as we walk through these examples in the prophets and in Nehemiah. So with that said, we'll start walking through these books. I have a lot of the passages on the slides that I'll pull up, but certainly if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, I'd encourage it. Some of these passages are fairly long, so putting them all on the slide makes the, the words somewhat small. So uh, we'll uh, start walking through those together. And the first book we'll go through is Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet living in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century B.C., and his ministry was one by which God largely hardened the hearers of his words. The people that were hearing Isaiah's prophecies typically resulted in further rebellion and hardening of themselves. Isaiah pronounced judgment upon Israel, but he also proclaimed in the later chapters of his book the coming of God's servant whose suffering would redeem a multitude from among the nations and usher the redeemed people into the glorious rest of a new creation. At the beginning of the book, God condemns Israel for its wickedness. Uh, in the first chapter, particularly in verses 13 through 17, God expresses his hatred for Israel's hypocritical worship. So if we go to Isaiah at the very beginning there in the first chapter, and read verses 13 through 17. We read the Lord saying to Israel, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In verse 13 there, we see that the people in the southern kingdom in Judah are continuing to observe the worship of the Lord on the new moon and the Sabbath and the calling of convocations. So we would normally think this is a good thing. They're continuing to follow this religious calendar that the Lord's given them. But God says that he cannot endure this worship. In verse 14, he says that his soul hates these ceremonies. 
and they're a burden to him. Why is this? Well, we see the reason in verse 15. He says, your hands are full of blood. In the following verses, we see God imploring the people to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, and then implies that they're doing the opposite, that they're doing evil, practicing injustice, and perpetrating oppression. And of course, as we read through Isaiah and the other prophets, we see the, uh, the wicked idolatry that Israel and Judah have been caught up in. But the reason that the Lord hates their worship is because it's being offered by a people who are in full-scale rebellion against him in the other aspects of life. They may be gathering for worship, but it's insincere. They may be going through the motions, but their hearts are set on evil. This helps us to see that faithful worship of God is inseparable from walking in genuine faith and obedience. We said before that keeping the Sabbath is an essential part of walking faithfully before God. But it can just as well be said that walking faithfully before God is essential to rightly keeping the Sabbath, or rightly worshiping the Lord in any way for that matter. And just as an aside, this is, it's not only true for Israel, this is true for us in our own day as well. If we gather today for the Lord's Day worship each and every Sunday, faithfully, but we then turn around and live like God-haters as soon as we leave the church building every day and for the next six days of the week, our worship here will be empty. Worse, it will be hypocritical. It will bring the Lord's reproach upon us. Our ability to worship rightly cannot be separated from our commitment to living in accordance with God's commandments. So going back to Isaiah, given the focus on Israel's worship and God's condemnation of the people, it's no surprise that worship also features prominently in the oracles of restoration that come later in, or in the latter part of Isaiah's prophecy. The next passage we'll look at is Isaiah 56, the first eight verses of that chapter, um, if you want to follow along. To set the scene for chapter 56, we have to understand the context where it sits. Obviously, we've skipped from 1 to 56, and there's a lot that's happened in there, but particularly zooming in on um, this section of the book of Isaiah. Uh, in the previous chapters, we've seen the prophecy of God's suffering servant who will come to bear the iniquities of his people and make them to be accounted righteous in chapters 52 and 53. In chapter 54, we read of a coming eternal covenant of peace that the Lord will make with his people. Then in chapter 55, we see God inviting sinners to come to him to receive the salvation that he alone provides promising to enter into an everlasting covenant with those who come to him in faith, and closing with the promise that the redeemed shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. All of this is a prophecy of the new covenant to be instituted by Christ through his blood. And so we see all of that in these chapters leading up to the chapter where we're focused on here, 56, and we understand that what's in view 
is this, the new covenant and the new covenant people, all of us. It is then that when we get into chapter 56, which opens with a call to wait, you know, await patiently the fullness of the Lord's promised salvation and righteousness, as well as to keep justice and do righteousness. So we'll go ahead and read the first eight verses of chapter 56, and then we'll talk about a few of the key points that we see in there. So we'll start out in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Here in this passage, we see several mentions of the Sabbath, and they tell us several key things. First, when the Lord instructs his faithful ones to keep justice and do righteousness, he follows up by describing this as keeping the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeping one's hand from doing any evil. Again, we see Sabbath keeping as an essential part of walking faithfully before God, along with keeping one's hand from doing any evil. And the man who does this, is, it says, will be blessed. Then as we continue reading through the passage, we see that this blessing is not only for the Jew, but also for the foreigner, indeed for all men, who have faith in God. This makes sense given the context that we spoke of of chapter 56. The Lord here is not talking about blessings that would be limited to the Jews. He's talking about blessings that will come to all men who trust in the Lord and who are brought into this new everlasting covenant through the work of the suffering servant who atones for their sin and grants them righteousness. But how does the Lord choose to describe these faithful foreigners who have been brought into the covenant? They are the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. The foreigner is the non-Jew, the Gentile, who loves the Lord and walks in obedience, including keeping the Sabbath as a holy day and not profaning it. So again, we see the faithfulness of God's people characterized by the keeping of the Sabbath, even as Isaiah is looking forward to this new covenant. And the next two chapters, 57 and 58, 
we see Isaiah's continued concern for worship. In chapter 57, God indicts Israel for their idolatry. Then in the first 12 verses of chapter 58, he indicts Israel for fasting without concern for repentance. Then he moves into describing the kind of righteousness that should accompany true worship. Once we get to verses 13 and 14 in chapter 58, God addresses how Israel specifically should observe the Sabbath. He says there in those verses, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here we see God promising great blessings for Israel, if they will delight in and honor the Sabbath, and turn from pursuing their own selfish desires on his holy day. In other words, God is calling Israel to stop treating the Sabbath as their day to do whatever they want, including idle talk, and instead to delight in the Lord's day, doing what he's commanded them by resting and worshiping the Lord and enjoying fellowship with him. God calls Israel to observe the Sabbath by pursuing what pleases him rather than pursuing what pleases them. Again, we see in this example the importance that God places on his people keeping his Sabbath. God made the Sabbath and has given it as a blessing to his people so that they would enjoy rest and communion with him. This was the case at creation. This was the case in the giving of the law. And it continues to be true for God's people Israel here in Isaiah if they would but turn from their sin. What we ultimately draw from this pattern is the endearing principle that God's people will experience blessings from his hand through the keeping of his Sabbath. The author sums this up well. He says, Those who keep the Sabbath holy and draw near to him and worship on that day, God says, will find for themselves pleasure and covenant blessing, the very matters to which the Sabbath had pointed from the creation. The next prophet we turn to is Jeremiah, who prophesied in Judah roughly a century after Isaiah. His prophecy came prior to, during, and after the conquering and exile of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. However, most of Jeremiah's prophecy occurs in that time leading up to the exile of Judah. And as a result, his words are overwhelmingly words of judgment against Judah for their violation of God's covenant with them and for their rampant idolatry. Today we'll focus on Jeremiah chapter 17 and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 27. Here we see God addressing violations of the Sabbath in Judah and Jerusalem. So we read in these verses, Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, 
Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of the city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bury burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. We see within that passage, in verse 22, the statement, Keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. This indicates that the blessings and judgments that God describes in this passage are covenantal blessings and covenantal judgments. Remember the context here. God is speaking to his people who are under the Mosaic Covenant, where obedience to God's law as given in that covenant is to be rewarded with blessings, prosperity, abundant life, a land in which to dwell, God's presence among them, and favor toward them. But disobedience is to be rewarded with punishment, the removal of, or the opposite of, all of those blessings. We see in verse 19 that God sends Jeremiah to the city gates, and particularly to the people's gate. That one's named specifically. uh, The gates by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out. The message he is to proclaim is a message for the kings and for all of the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this is for everyone. And what is the message? Well, we see it starting in verse 21 where he says, Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bury a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. So it's clear here that the people of Judah and Jerusalem are guilty of having engaged in commerce on the Sabbath day, rather than keeping it as a holy day of rest and worship as it was designed to be, and as God had commanded them to do. This was also an issue for their ancestors, who did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck, as God reminds them here. The people of Judah are simply carrying out the same tradition. All the same, God extends the promise of blessing in verses 24 through 26. If they will turn and obey, or a curse in verse 27 if they continue in their disobedience. 
If they keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, the blessings will be twofold. For one, he says, Davidic kings and princes will enter the gates on chariots and horses. God will bless the Davidic line with additional generations of kings as he had promised to do as part of the Davidic covenant. Secondly, people will come from all over Judah, bringing sacrifices and offerings to the house of the Lord. There will be an ingathering of God's people from all corners of the land so that they might worship God together. And in these blessings, the land of Judah would flourish and enjoy peaceful fellowship with the Lord their God, their covenant God. On the other hand, if they continue in violation of God's Sabbath as they have been, they will surely receive his wrath. He promises to kindle a fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and he'll pour out his judgment on the king and the people. Well, unfortunately, as we know, the latter is what came to pass. Judah continued in its rebellion and ultimately was taken away in exile to Babylon, and the city of Jerusalem was burned. And the temple of the Lord within it was desecrated and destroyed. But what our passage underscores for us yet again is the enduring promise of blessing for God's people that accompanies the keeping of the Sabbath. It's through Sabbath keeping that God blesses his people and that they enjoy fellowship with him. And we see here yet again that the keeping of the Sabbath, or lack thereof, serve as a clear indicator of Judah's overall spiritual condition. Judah was guilty of great and grievous sin, rampant idolatry, and the natural result of that was infidelity to the Sabbath. After all, why would the people dedicate a day of resting and worship to a God who they're already in rebellion against? The next prophet we'll turn to is the prophet Ezekiel, and unfortunately we will see more of the same. Ezekiel was roughly a contemporary of Jeremiah. Uh, He was also not only a prophet, but a priest, and his writing often concerns the temple and its worship. The book of Ezekiel is bracketed by the glory of God departing from the temple because of Israel's idolatry in chapters 8 through 10 and the glory of God returning to an eschatological temple in which the true worship of God has been restored in chapters 40 through 48. Ezekiel's prophecies in these chapters and the chapters in between highlight the keeping of the Sabbath as an indicator of Israel's failure to worship God rightly and God's eschatological restoration of hope among his people. An example of Israel's rebellion against God being signified by their failure to keep his Sabbath is found in Ezekiel chapter 20, where God recalls Israel's disobedience across multiple generations, including disobedience while in bondage in Egypt, um, during the first wilderness generation, the second wilderness generation, and the nation of Israel once they're living in the promised land. So just continued pattern of disobedience and the pattern as it's described, each time God blesses Israel, Israel rebels against God and turns to idols, 
and then God punishes Israel for their idolatry. So we see it over and over again um, across various geographic locations, um, but it's the same thing over and over. In each case of Israel's rebellion, they're said to have profaned God's Sabbaths. That's a key element of their rebellion against God. The plural Sabbaths rather than Sabbath is used because what's in view is not only the weekly Sabbath, it is the weekly Sabbath, but not only that, it's also the other ceremonial rests that God has given to Israel as part of their calendar of worship. These Sabbaths God describes in verse 12 um, of that chapter, of chapter 20, as a sign between me and them that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Uh, once again, we see the covenantal significance of the Sabbath and understand that Israel's failure to keep it was indicative that Israel was guilty of breaking the covenant and thereby bringing upon themselves punishment from God. The author helps put this in the greater context of the meaning of the Sabbath and the impact of Israel's profanation of it. He says, Here the term sign captures the expressly covenantal significance that the Sabbath took on under the Mosaic Covenant. The Sabbath was an indicator of the blessed eternal rest that God had prepared for all who had put their trust in him. It pointed to God's commitment to make his people holy and to their calling as the holy people of God. But Israel rejected these Sabbaths. They turned away from God's statutes and rules and greatly profaned his Sabbaths. So we see there in, in verse 12 in chapter 20, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But then... In chapter 22, verse 8, the Lord reminds them, You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Looking further in chapter 22, we see additional condemnation of Israel. As God reminds them, you know, here in verse 8, he reminds them that they've profaned his Sabbaths. In verse 26, we see the Lord... Uh, telling Israel, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. So even the priests, even the appointed guardians and custodians of God's Sabbath have sinned in profaning his Sabbaths. The shepherds have led the sheep astray. But God is gracious, and in the latter part of Ezekiel, he reveals a future restoration of his people in which he will bless his people with worship that is faithful and holy, as opposed to the idolatrous and sinful practices of Israel. We see that God will raise up a Davidic shepherd in chapter 34, verse 23, where he says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. God promises to give his people a new heart and set his spirit within them as well. In, cha in, the same, in chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
Despite Israel's covenant breaking, God will make an everlasting covenant of peace with his people and will dwell with them as their God. God also promises here to put his sanctuary amidst the people forevermore. In chapter 37, verses 26 and 27, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This eschatological temple is a representation of God's commitment to dwell with his people and to bless them. God will be present among his people. In the chapters that follow this in Ezekiel, he describes the temple and the worship that takes place within it and the blessings that it brings to the surrounding land of promise. But all this to say that despite Israel's idolatry, their profanation of the Sabbath, God promises that this will not always be the case. There will be a restoration of his people and they will worship him rightly and he will dwell in their presence. And the last book that we will look at is Nehemiah, which, you know, Nehemiah was not a prophet. Um, he was rather a governor over the Jewish people when they returned to their land uh, when it was still under the rule of the Persians. Um, however, you know, his book, even though it's not a prophecy, it's one of the latest writings in the Old Testament chronologically. Um, and the events that take place in it um, describe this return of Israel to the land, um, the reconstruction efforts of Jerusalem where they're rebuilding the walls. And his account gives a picture of the spiritual well-being of the Jewish people that have been restored to their former home. The author points out in the book of Nehemiah that we see that Nehemiah is concerned not only with rebuilding the physical boundaries around Jerusalem, but he's also concerned with establishing spiritual boundaries between God's people and the surrounding nations. So if we look in chapter 9, we see that under Nehemiah's governorship, the people confessed their sins and made a firm covenant in writing, as we see in verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And in that covenant, they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. It's in Nehemiah 10.29. So they're recommitting themselves to being obedient to the Mosaic covenant here. In particular, they also agree to not engage in commerce on the Sabbath. So going back to that subject we've seen before, what they were guilty of in the past, they commit to no longer doing that. We see in chapter 10, verses 31 through 33, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. 
We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. So the people here have committed themselves to faithful observance of the Sabbath and financial support of the same. Now the question is, did they keep this new covenant? Well, fast forward to chapter 13, and we find the answer there in verses 15 through 22. We read there Nehemiah saying, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Well, the people here have quickly reverted to their own, their old ways, have they not? They're buying and selling and engaging in commerce amongst themselves and with the resident alien, aliens on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah rebukes them, and he even takes steps to physically prevent the entry of goods into Jerusalem on the Sabbath to prevent this commerce from happening. But how quickly has, have these people turned right back to their old ways? It's clear here that the restoration of the Jewish people to the land of promise in the 6th and 5th centuries BC when this occurs, this was not a fulfillment of the prophecies of restoration that we saw previously in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. True restoration was still yet to come. And the hope for a restoration of God's people in faithfulness and true worship, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being led by their redeeming shepherd, all of that was still a future hope. And it's this hope that propels us into the pages of the New Testament where we will find the restoration of God's people finally brought about in Jesus Christ. We've firmly established by now that the keeping of the Sabbath is essential to walking faithfully before God. And this theme is interwoven through the prophets. In our next study, we'll turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as he reaffirms the Sabbath as a divine commandment and he clarifies its true meaning.